0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pakistanamy. My name is Uzair Yunus, and today we're going to be taking a broader look at the region, Um, and in particular, taking a look at some of the geopolitical developments that have been happening in the South Asian or the broader Middle East, um, and how they're impacting the South Asia region, particularly Pakistan, and to talk to me about what's going on, uh, which includes a lot of developments related to Houthi attacks um, in the UAE. Um, the most violent fighting U.S. forces have been involved in in Syria um, over the last three years. That just happened with the prison break in Syria, for those of you who are not aware. Um, and then increasing tempo of terrorist attacks, particularly by Baloch insurgents in Pakistan, which indications are um, that these groups have safe havens and, and operational logistics infrastructure in Iran. So all of these things are shaping up and Um, I have the honor of having with me Dr. Bali Nasser join us to explain to us what's going on. Dr. Nasser does not need any introduction, but just for those of you who may not have heard of him, he's professor of international affairs and Middle East studies at the John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And he served as the Dean of John Hopkins SAIS between 2012 and 2019 as well. Um, He's also author of several books, two of which I will highly recommend that you pick up and read. One of them is called The Dispensable Nation, American Foreign Policy in Retreat. And the second one is The Shia Revival, How Conflicts Within Islam Will Shape the Future. Um, The Shia Revival is a bit of an older book, but I still highly recommend it as a read to anybody who's trying to understand what is happening in the broader region. Um, So with that, Dr. Nasser, first of all, thank you so much for taking out the time and welcome to Pakistanami.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me to this great program. It's good to be with you.
0: I wanna jump right in. I remember reading your foreign affairs article titled All Against All, um, which talked about sort of a sectarian resurgence in the Middle East. I read this over the holiday break um, in December and I thought to myself, I need to have you on the podcast to talk about your essay and what's going on. And of course, in January, we had several developments that you were warning about in your essay um, emerge. You write in that essay, uh, quote, the United States' disengagement uh, from the region threatens to leave a political vacuum that will be filled by sectarian rivalries, paving the way for a more violent and unstable region, end quote. First of all, help us just understand the landscape of developments in the broader region um, and why should we be concerned about what's going on?
1: Well, if we look at at least the, the, the endpoints of the Trump administration and the beginning of the Biden administration, it's very clear that although the United States will, will not, is not preparing to leave every base and every soldier and all of its foreign policy from the region, that's a that's wrong way of looking at it. The United States is involved in Latin America, is involved in Africa, is involved in many regions of the world, and it will remain involved in the Middle East. But the extent to which it had been involved during the heyday of the war on terror, which is after 9-11 all the way till uh, at least uh, the Trump period, uh, where uh, war on terror and and this uh, worry about terrorism coming from the greater Middle East, I would call it, which includes Pakistan, Afghanistan, Corridor as well, had become become the uh, sort of focal point of American foreign policy. it became the organizing principle around which U.S. military, U.S. foreign policy was organized. And increasingly, starting with President Obama and under Trump and now Biden, there is a sort of a serious rethinking that the United States should be focused on China, should go back to great power politics, and that it has spent too much time and effort in the Middle East, which was wrongheaded to start with, but also there is there's no result to show for it either, whether it's Iraq, Syria, or, or Afghanistan. So the United States wants to do less in the Middle East. Now, the problem there is that the United States has been very much like the skeleton of the of, of the geostrategy of the region for a number of countries. Either they've organized themselves with the United States, like Saudi Arabia, UAE, Israel, Egypt, Jordan. In other words, their whole position in the Middle East is reliant on the American military and economic support. And in the case of... Uh, the Persian Gulf Emirates, uh, they really re- depend on American military power. Without it, they are not quite the same uh, uh, heft as Turkey, Iran, Egypt, uh, Pakistan, etc. cetera. And there are countries that have organized themselves uh, in contradistinction to the US, like Pakistan. Uh, even though Pakistan disagrees with the United States on many things, but it's impossible to say that Pakistan's foreign policy has not been organized around the United States. It has. Even complaining is a form of organization, right? So, so it's its whole military doctrine, the way it's thought about Afghanistan, the way it's thought about the region, about itself, internal dynamics of the country. America is sort of the two ton elephant in the middle of every, every conversation. Now, if all of a sudden the United States unilaterally doesn't want to do, doesn't want to get as involved everybody else, the, the whole the whole game is reset, right? In other words, the United States will not engage in new wars in the Middle East, be it in Syria or Iraq or Yemen, or it would basically signals to the countries in the region that it's not gonna come and basically fight their wars with them, that it's gonna sign a nuclear deal with Iran, that it's actually gonna leave Afghanistan. And all of these basically create a reset as I said, but reset also means there is a scramble for, for territory and influence. Everybody tries to see how can they protect themselves and advance their interests. So if the United States not gonna be in Afghanistan, which outside power will actually be dominant in Kabul? If one would be, and how would the other countries protect themselves and protect their interest in Afghanistan when the Americans are not there. And that's why everybody wants to have influence on the Taliban, everybody's investing on finding clients on the ground, uh, uh, You know, sort of becomes a scramble, right? Now the same game is playing out in Syria, it's playing out in Iraq, and it also is playing out regionally. So if the United States is gonna sign a nuclear deal with Iran, at least they're talking, and it's gonna disappear, uh, or, or is going to do less, then you know Saudi Arabia, UAE, uh, others will be in a new strategic environment, and they have to assess how they're going to protect themselves, and 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 uh, how they're going to advance their interests. And some of this will be through diplomacy, but some of it will be through escalation of conflicts.
0: And, and one of the things you allude to this as well, and I agree with you that this reset started in in the Obama era, accelerated in the Trump era, and continued under the Biden administration so far, has decidedly tipped the balance of power in Iran's favor. And in fact, I would at least argue that even the fact that we're negotiating, the US is negotiating again with Iran, has at least on face value given it more space and leverage to say, we're gonna still press our advantage even further. And that, of course, has brought the UAE and the Saudis closer to Israel. That breakthrough happened in the Trump administration, but has deepened in recent months. Um, How do you see this playing out in terms of the fact that on the one hand, the U.S. is withdrawing, so to speak, um, wants another deal with Iran, but it's seeking a deal with an Iran that is making regional powers more and more uneasy and confronting regional powers in so many different ways where they're actually under attack by Iranian-backed militia, so to speak, where the UAE gets hit now? Uh,
1: well, look, even in 2015, the nuclear deal that President Obama signed uh, was to take war off the table in the Middle East. I mean, the one reason the United States may go to war in the Middle East is over Iran's nuclear program. <laughs> or let's say if Israel was to start a war with Iran, it is over the nuclear program. So the 2015 nuclear deal was a way in which to free American military and other resources to focus on Asia. That's why the deal was signed. So if Iran is not going to be two weeks from a bomb, you don't need to have 500,000 troops over there, or you might not end up going to war, right? now, even then, uh, the the implication of that, and and I think that's still the case here. Yes, everybody's worried about Iran's nuclear program. But the United States cannot really focus on China if it's going to be babysitting Iran for the next 20 years or it's going to be in a war with Iran, a country that's multiple the size of Iraq, for instance, in terms of complexity and diversity and what it's gonna mean for the US military. So the nuclear deal is a way in which you would wanna reduce uh, uh, your engagement in the region. The reason the Arab countries didn't like the, the deal is not because Iran was doing more in the region, because they understood that a nuclear deal allows the United States to leave or to do less. And, and they would be the loser in that because they had become over-reliant uh, uh, on, on the United States to control Iran. Now, the US policy towards Iran, at least since the first Bush era, all the way to till uh, literally the Trump era has been to contain Iran. And the Arabs cannot do that by themselves. They need the United States to do it. They need U.S. military, they need CENTCOM, they need uh, U.S. diplomatic support, etc. So if the United States has a deal with Iran, especially the kind of deal that we had in 2015 where Iran's foreign minister was strolling in the streets of Geneva with the American Secretary of State, then essentially the United States is no longer committed to containment. Right. In fact, just before leaving office, President Obama said something that was very worrisome to the Arab countries, namely, uh, you got to find a way to coexist with Iran in a cold peace. You know, don't look to us. Right. We're not going to contain them anymore. Not the way you want it. So uh, that basically means that Iran gets much more room to expand its uh, influence. The same is true of Pakistan and Afghanistan. If the United States is not out there actively containing Pakistani influence in Afghanistan, then Pakistani influence in Afghanistan can be much more than it was when the American military was was sitting there. So, of course, if the United States is leaving, powers that um, were being kept at bay by by U.S. presence are now going to have more breathing room. But, but that does not mean that Iran's interests in the region has changed. I mean, uh, uh, in other words, the Iranians support the Shias in the region. The Iranians think that the Arabs ultimately are, are arrayed against them. Uh, this generation of Iranian Revolutionary Guard commanders are veterans of the, uh, of the Iran-Iraq war they remember that uh, the Iraqis occupied and annexed Iranian territory. Uh, over half a million Iranians died to liberate that territory. And when the Iraqis used chemical weapons against Iran, the West basically ignored it. In other words, the international law has no meaning when it comes, when, when it comes to Iran. So they, they understand that if they don't uh, try to control the Arab world, then uh, you know, uh, it's gonna come back and bite them. And, and yes, they have overreached. In other words, uh, uh, you, know, you would say Iraq is vital to Iran, but then uh, uh, you know, why do they want Syria? And, and, and they want Hezbollah because Hezbollah is a deterrence against Israel. And now they've got to engage in a war in Yemen. I, I mean, there is a point at which you know, uh, defense becomes excessive uh, uh, offense. But that doesn't mean that at some point there cannot be an equilibrium in the Middle East, right? There could be, there could be an agreement, except we're sort of in, in an eye of the storm because you, the old order very quickly is dying with a sudden American departure, right? And, and Pakistanis remember how the US quickly went, left Afghanistan in, as soon as the, uh, the Soviets were gone, like from today to tomorrow, they were gone, right? Uh, so something like that is happening in the broader Middle East. Uh, and, and uh, there is no negotiation or there is no agreement to, to, for something to replace it, largely because the Arabs have made no investment in that. You know, they were very happy with maximum pressure under Trump. They were very happy if the Americans bring, build a great wall of China around Iran and, and, and forcibly kicked it out of, out of the Middle East. So, so as a result, they're coming from behind. Now, the attack on UAE, I think, uh, uh, is interesting because the Iranians, during the heyday of maximum pressure, tried to send a signal to the Arab countries around them that they cannot uh, expect that they can uh, encourage America to, to, to clamp down on Iran and undermine the nuclear deal and uh, get Trump to pressure them and expect, expect not to be bloody. So the the lesson they, the the message they send is that if we're going to suffer we're going to make you suffer too. If if the Americans attack us we're going to we're going you you're going to be part of that war. You you're not going to be spectators. So they attacked tankers in UAE uh in in 2020 then they attacked the the Saudi oil installations, right? So the message was very clear that that uh look uh, the the strategy you you you're 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 following is likely to be problematic. And now uh, uh, Yemen uh, is is a hot potato between Iran and the Persian Gulf countries, because both sides want a negotiated settlement to finish it. But the question is, who's going to win that war? The Saudis escalated and, and captured some territory with the help of UAE in order to go to the table with an advantage. The Houthis don't want to go to the table when they're actually lost territory, so they're retaliating, and they're retaliating basically to knock UA out of the war, uh, particularly because UA is very vulnerable to, to just even a little bit of insecurity. It's heavily dependent on tourism and finances and expatriates, all of whom can be very easily spooked. So, all of this is not about ideology uh, or, or, or necessarily good guys versus bad guys. This is really the Middle East has become the scene of a big geopolitical great game. You have a number of guerrillas in the ring, which is Iran, Turkey, Israel, and to some extent, Saudi Arabia and, and its allies. They all are trying to make sure that in the new order, post American order, they don't lose. Uh, advantage, and that they actually are able to to protect uh, their interests. There is real territory for up for grab. I don't mean invasion like we're talking about Russia, Ukraine, although that may happen at some points. I mean, as we're talking, Turkey's occupied parts of Syria. Israelis are in Golan Heights, right? Uh, so there is sometimes there is territory involved, but there is political territory. In other words, because you have a group of weak Arab states that are in civil war, the outcome of those civil wars or the outcome of those political fights uh, will have winners and losers. It's not clear how much Assad will control at the end of the uh, Syria war, how much Turkey will control, right? The fate of Lebanon again again is up for, for grabs. Iraq is never settled, right? We still don't know, you know, the relative weight of Shia, Sunnis, Kurds, etc., And then Yemen, we're not even close to even a negotiation. So in the end in Yemen, who will come up on top? Who will get 50%, 40%, 60%? So it is, it is almost like a, a, pre, a, a 19th century European scenario where great powers are fighting over buffers and over territory and over who will have how much influence where. And, and, and so I think the real, this is a real sort of great game, if you would, between uh, the Arabs led by Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Iran, and Israel. And you're gonna see shifting alliances like Iran and Turkey agree on Qatar, but disagree on Syria and disagree on Azerbaijan. And then you also, in addition to the United States have new entrants into the region, Russia. And now China is becoming, they're becoming more and more more and more, uh, involved. So the danger in the Middle East is that, is, is that we're in a period of disorder, right? It's very much like, as I said, 19th century, uh, uh, eve of World War I, right after World War I, uh, Europe. And that's the way to think about it.
0: That's awesomely explained, and and I think it it brings up a couple of very interesting and important sort of questions in terms of where this goes. So on the one hand, this is where I want to start, is you have the United States that wants to engage in great power rivalry with China and move its resources away from the Middle East, and that's what's happening. That's birthing this 19th century power grab, so to speak, in the region. Now, the problem that I see is that the more the United States withdraws and the more this turf battle heats up, so to speak, on the ground, um, the risk is that there might be a confrontation that leads to an essentially almost a war-like scenario that draws the US back in, right? The US is no stranger to being drawn back in the Middle East or even Afghanistan after it left in the early 90s, so to speak, um, so that danger is there. In order to avert this danger, what do you think ought to be the US's stance and engagement strategy in the region where it essentially balances between its own need of focusing on other areas, um, including primarily China, and also making sure that things don't go out of hand to a point where the United States has to step in either to protect Israel or to protect core strategic interests that perhaps it it may, may have no choice but to engage in the region militarily once again?
1: No, those are very good questions, and I wish I could say that the Americans are really, the American administration is really thinking about this very hard, or or university professors or think tanks are think, thinking about very hard. I'm sorry that that's not the case. Uh, and, and, and often, you know, people who are in the region understand this sometimes a lot better than, uh, let's say, people in Washington. Uh, I, I think, you know, uh, there's a number of problems with the Middle East, and some of these are not America's doing some of it America's aggravated but there are fundamental problems one is that the middle east is an arena in which you have countries that are not comfortable in their own skin right in other words you have you, you because of the way borders were drawn or historically things happened you have ethnic divisions within countries so people are on paper citizen of a country but There is divisions either along religious lines or along ethnic lines, right? And so they're they're very susceptible to internal conflict and then to a, a regional conflict. So a country like Iraq or Syria were countries that were ruled by minorities. So everybody's an Iraqi under Saddam, but some Iraqis are more Iraqi than others. So the country was ruled by a minority of maybe uh, uh, 15 to 25% of Arab Sunnis because uh, the, the Arab Sunnis of Iraq and the Kurdish Sunnis of Iraq don't didn't see eye to eye even though they were both Sunnis. Were, there, there was an ethnic division. And then the Sun, the, there was the Shia Sunni division. So you had an absolute minority ruling over a majority that wanted to be part of it, right? So when Iraq broke up, the sectarian issue was not about, it's not like Pakistan. I, 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 I was in Pakistan even when some of these issues came up in the late 1980s. Uh, it was a lot more about uh, uh, you know, extremist ideology, you know, seeing Shias as being coffers and outside the faith, etc. In the Middle East, that might be in some quarters, but largely it's about general identity. It's kind of like in Pakistan, you're Muhajir or you're Punjabi. So in Iraq, that's Shia. So if you're Shia or in Lebanon, if you're Shia, it's basically your identity, right? Or you look at Lebanon, again, a country that is divided along uh, uh, religious and ethnic lines. Syria, you know, you have Alawites who ruled and majority uh, you know, population was suppressed. The Kurds in this region don't see themselves as really comfortable in any of the states they live in, right? And Pakistan and Iran have Baluchis and Kurds and, and, and you know, uh, Pashtuns and uh, these minorities. So, so that's, a, that's, a, uh, that's a problem that because it's not just in one country, it's across the region, any disturbance to regional balance of power uh, can be very, very explosive. Secondly, you have a region that is unique in that it doesn't have any kind of a regional forum where everybody sits around the table. You go to Latin America, there is Organization of African States, which even Cuba is participating. It's Organization of African Union. All African countries are members. In Asia, you have ASEAN. Uh, in Europe, you have European Union, you have NATO. You have, the, in the Middle East, you don't have one. You have Arab League, but Arab League by definition, excludes non-Arabs.
0: And, and the so, OIC, I would add, has not been as effective. At, but OIC also yeah. doesn't
1: include everybody. Yes, right. It doesn't include Israel, for instance. So, and, and then it's not Middle East So it's not it's not a regional forum. Uh, so so you, you so so that is absent. There is no there is no Middle East structure that that actually allows these countries to all participate and have a common ground. I mean, you looked at it and you said. The distance between UAE and Saudi and, and Iran is only 90 miles, some over 100 kilometers across the Persian Gulf, and yet they don't have an embassy. And they, for the past 10 years, they've been almost at near war with each other, same with Saudi Arabia. So that you know, tells you what the depth of the, of, of the problem is. And that gives an incentive for them to support one another's minorities, right? Uh, and and, and so, so I think there is certain danger points in, in the Middle East that are coming to the fore. And the argument I made in my article was that, of course, if there is a deal, if there is a nuclear deal between the United States and Iran, it does, it does lower the temperature. Unfortunately, Trump ruined all the trust and positive momentum that came out of the 2015 deal. Now, the Iranians are suspicious of the US, the much more hardline governments taken over in Iran, all of that's true. But still, it will lower the temperature. And and in that environment, you you could basically say, okay, the Iranians lose the incentive to to do extremely risky things. And similarly, Saudis or UAE or others will also similarly disengage from very, very risky things. And then you could build from there. If you don't have a nuclear deal, I mean, you cannot have a country like Iran kept under maximum pressure sanctions, which means that you basically are telling the country to eat grass and expect it to just say, yes, sir, thank you very much, I'm not gonna do anything. You put your knee on somebody's neck and press, they're gonna start scratching you and kicking you, right? So so I think that's why I I argued that if there is no nuclear deal, in a post-American scenario, uh, all of these tensions come to the fore. Now, why these tensions are likely to be sectarian? Because that's one of the raw nerves that runs through literally the whole region. In other words, it was Saudi Arabia who defined the Houthis as Iranian-backed Shias. Hezbollah is seen as a, not as a Lebanese organization, but as Iranian-backed Shias. Uh, you know, you have Shias in across the region, in Iraq, et cetera. And in in a tense environment, uh, because there is unresolved issues of distribution of power in Yemen, in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, those are the issues that will explode. And even countries like Pakistan or Afghanistan will not be immune from it, right? So that's why I'm saying it's gonna be sectarian, not because Shias and Sunnis immediately identify, or this is a religious fight, this is an identity fight that has its roots
0: in religion. And it it is becoming quite a dangerous situation. And I want to, you've mentioned Pakistan several times, majority of the audience is Pakistani. And that's where I want to pivot this conversation to, because all of this has immense relevance to Pakistan in the sense that we know there are hundreds, if not thousands of Pakistani militants that are currently fighting in Syria or have fought in Syria. There is a long history of, Iranian-backed Shia militant organizations in Pakistan and Saudi-backed Salafi and Wahhabi militant organizations in Pakistan. Pakistan has borne the brunt of that radicalization, not from a power dynamic perspective, but a core ideological sort of damage for decades now. And we saw this whole issue in the Middle East impact Pakistan in the sense that when the Saudis and the Emiratis decided to go into Yemen, Pakistan was asked to join this thing. And the expectation was that because Pakistan was a strategic ally who had benefited from petrodollars from the region, that its army would stand by the Saudis and the Emiratis in their hour of need. Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif went to parliament, um, rightfully so, and parliament decided, no, sorry, we have plenty of wars going on internally and on our border. We don't want to get engaged in another one. And that soured the relationship. And that relationship, sourness still lasts You see the repercussions of that to to this day. But on the same hand, you have sort of, at at this point at least, increasing uh, violence from Baloch insurgents who have found safe haven um, in Iran. And the Pakistanis, at least some segments of Pakistani society are saying we have to confront this because this is becoming a challenge. And obviously senior level uh, military engagement has happened between Pakistan and Iran. Prime Minister Khan has said he wants to mediate peace between Saudi and and, and, and Iran. And so it it is a dangerous situation from an internal Pakistani stability point of view. How do you think Pakistan ought to navigate this primarily? Because it is, after all, it, it has, after all, an army that can do a lot of damage if it enters this conflict and on one side or the other. So even its neutrality sort of hurts the Saudis because if they had the Pakistani army on on its side, not only the Yemen but also potentially threatening a second front on the Iranian side, then it changes the dynamics significantly. What is your advice to Pakistani policymakers as they try to navigate this evolving situation in the region? I
1: mean. One of the ways to think about it is that this issue didn't have is, didn't the issue of iran pakistan relations was not born today, right? So let me give a little bit of background to it. I mean, first of all, it's important to note that that um, Pakistan is the second largest Shia country in the world, uh, just by uh, virtue of uh, that 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 it has a, it has a size of its population. So maybe there are 30, 40 million. She has in Pakistan, which is uh, obviously their Pashtuns, their Punjabis, their Sindhis, their Muhajirs, ethnically different, but it, that's larger than the entire country of Iraq. And so, uh, uh, and in fact, this issue of sectarianism as a, as a way in which Iran and Saudi Arabia would compete, uh, even before it happened in Iraq, happened in Pakistan in the 1980s. Uh, at the heyday of it uh, and then eventually uh, um uh basically the 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 uh shia's could not fight a much larger sunni extremist groups etc. They they basically disbanded the fight but uh sunni extremism like a torpedo in the water is still there looking
0: you yeah, know and and, and uh, we still sorry to interrupt but we still Experience um, a regular uptick every now and then on assassinations targeting Shia in right. Pakistan. That's
1: right. That's right. I mean, and also the profile of Shias in Pakistan is very different from the Arab world. Ironically, yes, it's prejudiced against, but it's actually not the bottom of society. I and mean, it is a country that was created by a Shia. Uh, many of its prime ministers were Shia, even though they were forced to deny they were the case. I mean, the fa- the, the Bhutto family, uh, uh, you know, Ayai Chandigarh. Uh, uh, you know, Sohravardi. They were all. They were all uh, Shi'as. Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, so many of the generals, including um, uh, uh, the, the ones who carried out the coup in 1958, were 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 Shi'as. So it's not a country in which they have, they've been at the bottom, but in fact, they had a lot of its elite, business elite, intellectual elite, political elite, zamindars uh, who were Shi'as. Uh, but 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 even after the shias stopped you know the the zeal of the iranian revolution groups like ssp et cetera they actually appeared after the fact after the most of the sectarian fighting of the 80s was done that's when safa Sahaba, et cetera begin to um, you know emerge uh, as 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 national forces so i do think pakistan is vulnerable i'm not saying that the shias have the capability to to rise up, but I could see see a scenario in which uh, it would be very much like what Hindus are doing to Muslims in India. Could become Sunnis doing it to Shias in Pakistan. I mean, it's very interesting Pakistanis decry what's happening to Muslims in India. The bigotry, the, the laws that are being passed, but they have to be careful that the same thing doesn't happen with their own minorities.
0: I would argue that to an extent, it's also a bit weird that Pakistanis say that and do not introspect in terms of the laws that are on the books against Ahmadis in their own country.
1: That's what I mean. I mean, I mean, the Ahmadis and then the Shias and then there are Christians and there there, there are others. Absolutely. Um, The other issue is that Iran and Pakistan were very close to one another during the Shah's period. The axis in the region was Iran and Pakistan, Afghanistan and India especially under Dawood Khan. Uh, 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 And and then, you know, after the Iranian revolution, uh, under General Zia, maybe because they were afraid of Khomeini's meddling in Pakistan, maybe it was for ideological reasons, Pakistan uh, 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 changed sides and, and built a strategic relationship with Saudi Arabia. And in fact, it was the Saudis that then began to fund all of the madrasas and all of the extremist groups very successfully to basically destroy the uh, the the, um, the Shia militancy that Iran was supporting in the 1980s, right? Now there is a point at which the Iranians basically decide that Pakistan is Saudi-occupied territory, diplomatically speaking. That is, foreign policy, that is, regional policy is now dominated by Saudi Arabia, and that's when Iran begins to pivot. Much more in the direction of India. I mean, on issues like Kashmir, Benazir Bhutto went to Iran and spoke about Kashmir to a, a, an audience of, uh, you know, religious scholars, etc. All of whom just stared at her without any, um, you know, commitment, uh, to put it that way. Uh, so, so in a way, the geostrategy, and in Afghanistan, they sided on the wrong opposite sides. The Iranians supported the Northern Alliance. Uh, General Soleimani was uh, a a very close friend of Shah Ahmad Massoud. He was instrumental in organizing the Northern Alliance. And in fact, ironically, he was instrumental in in helping the United States destroy the Taliban in 1994, right? Then things have begun to change, namely that um, Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, not just over Yemen, but also over the fact that Mohammed bin Salman has a different view of Saudi foreign policy or this role in the Muslim world, etc., is begun to sort of try to dissociate itself from Pakistan. Right? And, and uh, uh, the war in Afghanistan has also ended. And Pakistan also cannot afford to completely lose Iran to India either. So, uh, and, and the two sides do play these games with each other. So there is a time when the Iranians complained that uh, uh, their, their Baluchi separatists, who all of whom are the and have been trained in the seminaries in Quetta, are, uh, are allowed to come across the border um, through, you know, obviously the Pakistani military support. Now, Iranians are also playing the same game now. The question is why? What's going on, right? What 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 is the reason why uh, this might be happening, right? So it might have to do with Afghanistan. It might have to do with what's happening in Kabul. It might have to do with uh, Iranian unhappiness with the Haqqanis in Kabul, for instance, or it might be something else that we don't currently see, right? So. I would say for Pakistan if Pakistan and Iran really cannot afford to have antagonistic relationship. They're too large for that. And I actually, do, uh, uh, and, and, and both of them in a way have this relationship with China that will require them to get along to some extent. And there is no alternative for diplomacy. And I'm not, and, and there is a cases where you could say that, uh, that their agendas will not uh, overlap. I mean, it's just like Iran and Turkey don't get, on Azerbaijan, Iran was supporting Armenia with Russia, and the Turks, you know, intervened to win the war for Azerbaijan. So so I think, you know, th- there are significant issues on the table, particularly around Afghanistan, between the two of them, uh, that require them to, 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 to work through. And and to see and, and to try to resolve things. It doesn't mean that you know they, they will always have good relations, but I don't think uh, you know a direct confrontation would would benefit uh, uh, either side.
0: Do you think it's a, the the own sort of internal economic challenges Pakistan has sort of undermines its ability to better navigate this confrontation between Saudi and Iran? And the reason why I ask this is like. If I were to then game this out, the the Pakistanis just got some billions of dollars from the Saudis as a deposit to help out ahead of the IMF agreement. Um, They constantly have gone back to Saudi Arabia for that kind of help, and despite the frostiness, the Saudis have agreed to do that. That, at least in my mind, then, you know, to, to use sort of what you were saying, reinforces the view in Tehran that Pakistan essentially diplomatically, economically speaking is Saudi territory because the Saudis bail them out every time. And therefore, because Pakistan is reliant on this dollar flow from Saudis or the Emiratis, um, that it eventually will make that choice of sort of confronting Iran if the time comes. Um, And so for Pakistan, from my point of view, that's a fundamental challenge because you then cannot navigate independently in this growing confrontation, simply because you're handicapped on your economic side and your own well-being because you need those dollars. Do you agree that that makes it a lot more challenging than it would otherwise be if Pakistan had sort of a more robust economy? Uh,
1: Yes. I mean, uh, if Pakistan had a more robust economy, many things in Pakistan would change. Uh, Many of its foreign policy would change. Uh, so, 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 and, and this is one. Of course, if you, if it's becoming over dependent on Saudi Arabia, and it has been. The other issue is that just like Iran in 1979, the the profile of the country changed. It became much more overtly Shia and much more overtly religious. The same has happened to Pakistan. I mean, uh, pa- it's not just the jihadi groups. It's just there the, is the, the sort of Sunni identity, even in the middle classes in Pakistan has 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 uh, taken a great deal of root so uh, uh, ultimately the sympathy deep down of of the pakistanis lies with, with saudi arabia that's the way the iranians there was a time when the persian culture you know was more of a bridge between them even with the pashtuns whose language is closer that you know Iqbal wrote in urdu and wrote in persian Iqbal didn't write in arabic right so but but that sort of a persian connection that connected iran to to the muslim culture of the subcontinent going back to the Mughals, has been replaced by a kind of wahhabi you know pakka sunni outlook that is exclusive of iran which is a shi'a country right and so so at, at a fundamental level that is true uh, that, that the kind of um, the relationships that kept them together in the past is not there anymore. So it has, so, so uh, but I do agree. I mean, you know that Pakistan also faces some s- significant sets of issues. It's, uh, it's not just that the country's economy is very dependent on Saudi Arabia. It's security forces themselves, almost like a independent economic institution are heavily dependent on the Persian Gulf for direct aid, for for jobs, for uh, for uh, retirement, for, for varieties of things.
0: Yeah, right? I think so, there's like thousands of them retired individuals who are currently in Bahrain. Um, that's true, and, and also, and Bahraini also,
1: uh, it's true that the the Pakistanis uh, uh, turned down fighting in Yemen, which is a very wise thing because Yemenis are, are not, I mean, they would have, Pakistani military would have faced the same set of things that the Americans did in fighting with the Taliban in Afghanistan, it would be an endless costly confrontation. But at the same time, the Pakistani military was providing guards to the royal family, right? Uh, uh, so, so um, I mean, for Mohammed bin Salman, for his father, so, so uh, there's there's also that level of relationship. Now, I mean, I think it's good that Prime Minister Khan and others want Iran and Saudi Arabia to, to make up, because that actually would reduce the pressure on Pakistan to have to choose. The more polarization you have, uh, the more Pakistan will be will be put in a position that it has to take policies that it's not comfortable with, right? And also if the Middle East collapses into much more aggressive sectarian fighting, it's going to visit on Pakistan. There's no way for Pakistan to be immune from that. And that would be devastating for Pakistani society.
0: Yeah, and I think two two interesting things that, I think that are to your point about sort of the linkages with ancient Persia in the subcontinent and how they lasted and then changed starting in the 80s, so to speak. Um, I think we're beginning to see, and I would love your thoughts on this, at least from my perspective, we're beginning to see a similar break um, caused by MBS's social reforms in Saudi Arabia, where now they're seeking to ban the Tablighi Jamaat, for example, um, and have issued sort of orders to do that, et cetera. So Pakistan's own Sunni clergy now does not find... Uh, sort of the same level of influence and acceptability in the patron that they did in Saudi Arabia. Um, and that maybe over time may create sort of break off those linkages. It's still very early in that sense. And number two, that in a way similar to you know what you write about the Shia revival, we're seeing a barelvi revival um, in Pakistan in the form of the TLP. and that radicalization is its own beast, um, is, is talking about a whole different set of issues. But it also does not have a link and connect and sort of subservience to the Saudi Arabian version of Islam. In fact, many Barailis that I know, when they go to Saudi Arabia, do not even pray behind the Imams in Mecca and Medina, because they do not consider them to be the same Muslims as they would. Do you think that then also changes the dynamics? Because regionally, if if you don't have the same patronage from the Saudi uh monarchy in terms of these groups then they may also say okay time to move on and do something else
1: uh, yes uh, without a doubt i i, I i've worked in Pakistan. i mean first time i went to pakistan to work on Islam islami was 1989 so it's like in four four decades and at that point in time i could see and over the sort of the next decade that there is a there was a competitive field in pakistan that in order to get more money and more support and and more recognition, you had to compete not with secularists, but you had to compete with the extremists next to you. And and sort of they were in this competition made them to become more and more extremists. And and uh, you know, sort of moderate Deobandis became hardline Deobandis the if they wanted patronage. And then the hardline Deobandis would become extremist Deobandis. The and then that has spilled outside of to now brailabis. Who are who are not trying to confront the Obandis through preaching the opposite, but trying to be to out the Obandi the Obandis. Right now, there was money attached to this. I mean, I remember, you know, meeting uh, small town clerics to talk about their experiences with Jamaat or their history, and they were affable, they were nice, they were. Uh, 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 you know, had a little uh, house. The next time I went to Pakistan, his house was larger. His belly had got bigger. His beard had got longer. And and then, you know, he had a seminary and he had dormitories and he had money. And along the way, I could see that he's become, he has also become more and more and more hardline and didn't want to answer questions like, well, you know, the Obandis traditionally are Hanafis. And how do you square that with, with Hanbali law? And you know, at one some point, some of them would say, well, "You know, you're a Shia. We're not talking to you anymore." Right? So you could see this, and 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 the, and, and the trend of of uh, of becoming more hardline was 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 directly correlated with the size of their belly, with their wealth, and how big their seminaries and dormitories were become. So the question was, well, where, where's this money coming from? Now, either it's coming from benefactors in the Gulf or it's coming from whatever benefactor in Pakistan or in London or whatever else who who obviously wants them to to say what they're saying. Now, someone else was watching what happened to this Bravi to this uh, uh, and would basically mimic that. and so so you had a competitive environment in which uh, radicalization went with financial support now the thing with with this kind of a uh, uh, is it, sticky in other words you can't clean it up right away they've now trained tens of thousands of people right they've changed the the, the understanding of islam in Pakistan. They've, they've they've changed attitudes towards tolerance towards you know law towards varieties of things and that's going to take time to change. But but the, but but denying the financial support, in other, in other words, extremism and religiosity had become an industry. Yeah. And, and the behavior of the Molavis was very much what economists call rational choice behavior. Now, if you take the you know the, the motivations and put it somewhere else, the hope is that. You know, uh, you would have a different dynamic, and that might change change the discussion.
0: Some would argue that Pakistan has always had a very dynamic startup culture when it comes That's to. That's right. When it comes to. No, they are all additions.
1: entrepreneurs. I mean, uh, the, the product is not is not uh, is not uh, savory, but if you look at them, they're, they're all they're all entrepreneurial tycoons.
0: That is true. um I'm I, I mindful of time, and uh, the last question I had for you was, where do you see all of this going in the next, say, six to eight to 12 months um, on two fronts? One, regionally, where does this 19th century Game of Thrones essentially go next? Um, and two, the Biden administration is engaged with Iran once again. But if I'm also putting myself in the shoes of the Iranians who sort of been uh, you know, in their view, betrayed by America after the last deal, um, I'm looking at American politics and saying, hey, you have a president that's not really popular. He's about to lose badly in the midterms. And Trump might actually be back in 2024. Who knows? So maybe we shouldn't make a deal because this deal is also not going to last. So what? where do you see both these things going on the deal front and also regional politics and geopolitics?
1: So I, I think both the United States and Iran need this deal. The United States uh, does, does not want a situation in which Iran will become more and more and more a threshold nuclear state or even become a nuclear state. And then the only way of stopping it is going to war with it. That's not a good, that's not a good policy, right? And the Iranians need a deal because ultimately they need to bring money into their economy. US you, so you can survive pressure in the short run, but in the long run, it it hollows out the country. It creates social instability. I even think the Supreme Leader, the, the, the Iranian President Raisi cannot claim to be a successful president if the Iranians are suffering and are unhappy. And I think the Supreme Leader knows that the succession to his office is perhaps around the corner, and it will be smoother, more stable if Iran's economy is stable. But you're right, that doesn't mean any deal. I don't think the Iranians will accept a simple the, the way they did the deal of 2015. In other words, we give everything up and we're going to give everything up in six months. And then you uh, uh, will wait for you to do your part, right? They came to the conclusion that the reason Trump withdrew from the deal is because he had no worries about Iran. They had, they had given up their whole nuclear program and therefore there was no risk. So I think the Iranians will drag their feet. They will insist on maybe keeping some of their nuclear material inside Iran, even though it might be under lock and key of international order. They will uh, uh, insist on much more of a step-by-step implementation process rather than, you know, you have six months to do this and they have six months to do that. A lot of this is not palatable to the United States, right? But, but, I, but I think uh, uh, the, the single most important issue facing the region is whether this deal will happen or not. If it doesn't happen, we're going to be in a dark tunnel, whether it's a Republican or a Democratic president. Because then the United States ends up in a, in a cycle that could end up in conflict with Iran. And the Iranians are going to spread out the risk to the United States away from their own borders into everywhere else. Right. And they I, I and, was just thinking
0: as you were describing that, sorry to interrupt, that they have many, many pieces on the chessboard that can be right. havoc way, way away from their own home.
1: Well, actually, the reason they've held on to these pieces, it's not imperial grandeur. It's exactly because they don't have conventional means of defending the country. So to them, Hezbollah or Houthis or Shia militias or Syrian militias, the Fatimyun Brigade, etc., these are all these are all means of, uh, of 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 defending themselves outside and away from their own borders, and if there is a deal, even if it's a slow deal, I think that provides room for uh, for um, uh, you know things to settle down. Uh, and even if as the Republican administration comes in, I don't think you will be in the same place that. Um, that Trump was. I mean, first of all, look, whatever rhetoric the politicians say, they know that the maximum pressure strategy failed. I mean, you put maximum pressure on Iran for five years, not let him sell any oil, do any of that. And they didn't fall, and they didn't come to the table with, with a you know white flag. So, uh, it's almost will be uh, the reverse of what Iran does. Iranians said, we don't talk to America, et cetera, et cetera. Now that the conservatives are in power, they're talking about direct talks with the U.S. Uh, so, so I don't think the Republicans would also want to get themselves into a situation of war with Iran. If there is a deal on the table, they may nag and pressure and things, but I don't think they want to wreck it. And, and, and as you can see, America has its hands full with Russia and with China. And, and the Russia problem is not going to go away. I mean, right now, as we're speaking, I don't think anybody in Washington has time to talk about the Middle East. Yep, and everybody's agree. pretty much forgot about China uh, yeah. right now. So, so, I, so I, I am hopeful that if there is some kind of a formula and not to say it's easy, that it would, it would create some breathing room for this region.
0: I think the challenge for American policies in so many ways is that as it sort of withdraws and tries to focus on China and great power rivalry, as you described it, it resets the stage in many other places it was involved in. And that resetting not only regionally has an impact, but it sends a message to Xi Jinping or Putin or whoever else. to say, Let's let's put more pressure on here to see whether we can press our gains. Um, And I think that's the challenge for American foreign policy is that we have to find a way to continue keeping our eye on the prize while remaining engaged at some level in these places where the reset is happening such that things don't fall apart to a place where we have to go back in, um, because that would be a catastrophic failure of policy at this point in time. Exactly,
1: exactly, very
0: true. Dr. Nasser, thank you so much for taking out the time. I think your own books are a must read. So I'm going to link them below in the description for everyone else to read, including your essay in Foreign Affairs. But again, thank you so much for being generous with your time and look forward to having you on the podcast soon.
1: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It was very good being with you. Bye-bye.